Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. I'm Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode 245. If you're listening to this, your book tour is in full swing. It is. We are in Texas, probably. Uh, nope. We'll be in Seattle, Portland. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm thinking too far down there. You are. So this is... Uh, this is Late June. End of June. Yeah. So we've just kicked off. We've just kicked off our mm-hmm. tour. We are, Obviously, we're, we're recording this a little ahead of time. But we're doing well. But we are. We're, 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 we're having well fun. We're having fun. Covering some ground. Uh, check out, by this stage, well and truly, if you uh, are in America, our North America, and want to check out and come and yeah, hear us live, go to Slow Your Home slash events for full listings. Yeah. Some will be live podcast recordings. Some will be book talks. Some, some will be in conversations with, with another people. person. Yeah. Lots of exciting things happening. Oh, yeah. Including this episode with Anita Van Dyke. So... Anita does just about everything. Uh, yep. So she's a zero-waste activist. She's a rocket scientist. Literally. She's currently studying medical school at yeah, medical school. Yes, to be a doctor. Obviously. And now she's an author. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does Anita teach us about slow living? <laughs> it's funny. We actually speak about that in, in our conversation. Anita is awesome. She is a force to be reckoned with. And she is the epitome of a person who now lives by her values. And she didn't? She didn't. No. So this is what our conversation starts with. She used to be um, a much higher achieving version of me um, in terms of constantly striving. Don't sell yourself short. Oh, no, I am. You're a terrible slouch. Thank you. Caddyshack reference. Caddyshack reference for those playing along at home. I don't really talk to my wife like that. Sorry to interrupt you. So she was high achieving. She has a she has a very interesting background, like and how a culture has influenced. Yeah. That. So this conversation really goes back to her roots. She's a, a Chinese Australian, and her parents arrived in Australia uh, when they were a young couple. And she and I had a really interesting conversation about the impact of that and. Um, you know, her her family and her community's, I guess, value of financial security and the stuff that comes along with that and how that impacted her growing up and her uh, career trajectory and also the stress that she felt as she got older and more successful and how all of that culminated in an enormous shift where she just stepped way back and was able to evaluate her personal values and then make this shift to become the person who's living the, you know, the zero waste activism, studying to be a doctor lifestyle that she is now. It's really fascinating to to talk to her about how that has all kind of knitted together into this really rich kind of tapestry of a life. And she's still only young. Yeah. Amazing. Just amazing what she's doing. She worked for NASA? In the rocket scientist? I don't don't think so, but... Uh, she's currently living in San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I know NASA's everywhere. Anyway, beside the point, we hope you really enjoy this episode. Yes. So, Anita, before we dive into it, Anita's book, her first book, comes out in about, if you're listening to this when it's been released, it comes out on the 2nd of July, 2018. So, in a couple of short days. A couple of short days. Uh, and it is called A Zero Waste Life. And it's the format of her book 
is really interesting to me. It's quite different. She has a 30-day challenge for people looking to shift towards zero-waste living, and her goal is to make it accessible to everybody, not people who have endless hours a day to make their own toilet paper, but to people who have full lives like she does and are still able to make those small daily shifts towards living a zero-waste life. We do have a really interesting conversation about what zero-waste living actually means. And Anita, so thankfully, has a really realistic view of what a true zero-waste life looks like because I think that that's a term that gets people feeling really anxious about not doing enough. Yeah. Yep. You know, uh, every time you accidentally or you ask for no straw and they give you a straw. It lends and itself get very easily to comparison Absolutely. about what other people do in a zero waste space. That's right. Yeah. And I think that anything that gets people thinking about waste is is a good thing, but the way Anita approaches it is so accessible and uh, invitational and friendly. Mm. Anyway, this is a really, really tops conversation. I loved every second of it. Uh, so you head to slowyourhome.com slash 245. 245 for show notes. And if you wanted to keep up with what Anita's up to, you can find her on Instagram. She's at rocket underscore science. Enjoy. Anita, how are you? Hi, Brooke. I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. Very, very well for speaking to you, actually. I'm really excited about our chat today. Thank you. Similarly, like I said before, I'm a huge fangirl of yours, so it's great to finally meet. Oh, likewise. I've just been, I mentioned to you just before we hit record, I've been creeping on your Instagram uh, feed and it's fantastic. I mean, the work that you're doing in zero waste advocacy and activism is awesome. But what I like about it is you've got this really interesting point of view, I think, that I've really enjoyed kind of getting to know because of your background. You've got an engineering background and you're studying medicine. So you have this kind of scientific, practical bent to your posts and your tips and your advice to people, which I think makes it really accessible. Uh, thank you. I think, um, you know, being an engineer, you we really like to have practical solutions to everything. And being an engineer and having that engineering background really helped me hack into this zero waste lifestyle um, by finding solutions to everyday problems. And that's what I really enjoyed about living a zero waste life, that it's actually embraced my creativity within these confines of trying to reduce my waste. So that's been really fun for me. Yeah, and I I really appreciate it too because I'm someone who will look at a problem like plastic waste, for example, and mm. just get really overwhelmed at the enormity of it. Like, yeah, mm. sure, I can I can refuse to use straws and I can carry a keep cup with me and that's great. Mm. But look at this enormous mountain of rubbish. What can I do about that? But you're mm. really just encourage people to, to go step by step, which I think is the only way to to make change long term. Absolutely. I think sustainable living really has to be sustainable for you. And my interpretation of living a zero waste life is just to do what you can to leave a gentler footprint on the planet. You know, there's all these articles about rising sea levels and plastic pollution, and it can feel really, really overwhelming. But I think my Instagram and also the book that I have coming out called A Zero Waste Life is a talking about the small things that we can do that can make a big cumulative difference. Because like you say, if 
you know, even if you uh, take your keep cup with you or refuse a plastic bottle and bring your own bottle, one person may not seem like a, a big difference or one bottle may not seem like a big difference. But imagine if 7 billion of us mm. did that, you know, even if even if um, 20 percent of the world's population said, hey, no more plastic bottles. Th- Think of the cumulative difference that can make in the long term. So I like to think of, you know, the big climate change policies are the 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 stem the trunk that we have to focus on in terms of advocacy. But the things that we're doing in our everyday is our the low hanging fruit that we can pick from, that we can all do. And I think that empowers us as an individual to be able to do those things. So then we can look at the bigger picture as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it gives us that sense of being part of the solution yes. in a daily sense rather than, than waiting for one big action we can take, and, you know, at the, at the on election day or whatever the case may be. Yes, that's right. Now, I want to go back a little bit to mm. your life a few years ago because you weren't always uh, a minimalist. You weren't always uh, someone who was focused on zero waste living. You were a self-described maximalist. <laughs> <laughs> so you couldn't Absolutely. get any more opposite, really. Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll flash back to a few years before I started this lifestyle. I was 26 at the height of my career. I was working at a large engineering firm. I was making more money than my parents had ever had in their entire lives. And I thought the route to success was money, power, status. You know, these three things were instilled in me at a very young age, coming from a Chinese-Australian background, having that immigrant experience, that these were the solutions to every problem that we had. Growing up, we we didn't have a lot of money. Growing up, we didn't have a lot of stability in terms of our income. And so my parents always instilled in me that money was the solution to all of your problems. And so being the good firstborn Chinese (laughs) daughter that I was, I worked hard, I got good grades, I got a nearly perfect UAI, I went on to do literally study rocket science, I did a Bachelor (laughs) of Aerospace Engineering, and I got a good job in in corporate engineering. And I climbed my way all all the way up to that, you know, top engineering job, and I just had a bit of a, you know, quarter-life crisis. I just remember looking around me and I was in a a meeting in in the boardroom on level six one day and there was my manager, my manager's manager, and I just looked and I thought, did I want to be this person in the next five, 10, 20 years' time? And that sudden realisation of sitting there that this is my future and these are the people who I am going to end up as made me realise, no, that, that wasn't who I wanted to be. And that shook everything up. That, mm. that, that shook me right to the core. Because then you start asking yourself the question of who do I want to be? What do I want to be with? Uh, what do I want to do with my life? And those are the really scary questions that I've never really asked myself before. And they're terrifying, aren't they? When you've, you've taken a certain path for a certain number mm. of years, you know, up until you're kind of mid-20s, whatever the age was that this hit you, uh, mm. And it's really scary to kind of think, okay, well, this is where I got doing all the shoulds, you know, fo- mm. following on the expectations of family uh, and, and you know, the, the things that we, we just feel like we're expected to do uh, and then to stop and think, okay, <laughs> what would it look like if I shifted to living according to my priorities? And then what are my priorities? Absolutely. And that was the scary thing. I've, you know, all my life money was 
the key to success. Right. Money meant food on the table. It meant that you had a face in the community. So within the Chinese community, it's a lot about showing face. So being, you know, successful in terms of status and money meant that you allowed to show your face into the community that you were a respectable person in society. So no one had ever told me that work was more than just money. Right. So I was never taught that. And asking those difficult questions of what would I do if money wasn't involved were really, really difficult. And that's why I had that, you know, total change, that total almost broken dam fiasco, yeah. <laughs> which I call where I just was brought to tears trying to ask answer these questions. Right. And particularly when, as you say, that's not something that culturally you had been exposed to, you know, it was status, it was working for money, it was working for being able to have that voice and that visibility in your community. How did you extricate yourself from that narrative? I mean, what were your parents' reactions? And Yeah, I was very fearful at first. And one of the things that was holding me back from quitting my job and saying no to things was what my parents would think of mm. me. And not because necessarily they ever placed any pressure on me. It was just the fact that I had known their experience. So my parents were immigrants to Australia and they came at 30 years of age, barely speaking a word of English. My dad came with $200 in his pocket. He weighed 48 kilos for a uh, you know, a normal height man. Mm. So that's very, he didn't weigh a lot of, he didn't have a lot of food. Mm. And he escaped a communist regime to make a better life for himself. So he crawled into Australia with $200 in his pockets, literally nothing, and climbed his way up by working, working, working. And then he, you know, paid off his mortgage and he raised two children with both my mum. And I always laugh because I always say to my mum and dad, you both have this communist work ethic. <laughs> And, and they've instilled that into me too. You know, I've always worked really hard for everything in my entire life. And for the first time where I had this kind of, you know, quarter life crisis, I had to stop work because I wasn't physically or emotionally capable of going on and continuing without pausing. Right. So I had to quit my job. With the help of my husband, he said, you know, this job is killing you. You just have to quit. And I did. And that was the first time in my life I ever had a pause because all my life I had been working, working, working from the age of, you know, 17, I always had a job uh, straight after school. I was working part time and studying full time. And then straight out from that, I, you know, got a full time job. I've never given my time, given myself any time to breathe. And that was the first time. And Brooke, I have to say it was really scary. Yeah. <laughs> I was, was just going really to say scary. that, I imagine. It was really scary because it was the first time I had to go deep and look at the questions that I hadn't asked myself ever and find answers. So I took about six months off work just to to find out who I was, Brooke. And what did that look like? I mean, did you just spend a lot of time in reflection? Did you meditate? Did you find a practice that, that kind of helped you work through those questions or was it just a case of giving yourself time and space? So that six months was really a blessing in disguise because I felt like I had fallen from being this hero and then I went to zero. Mm. And in that time, I, I firstly learned how to meditate 
that was the uh, absolute game changer mm-hmm. for me, meditating every day. And also I started volunteering and volunteering is such a key. And I think that in our busy society, we don't give time to volunteering. Often we give money and that's great as well, but actually taking time out of your day, out of your week, out of your life to give back to the community was something that was so nourishing to my soul. It was something I never even thought of to do because I always thought, you know, work equals money equals time. Right. And giving my time for nothing was the best thing. So I started volunteering at the local hospital, at the emergency department there. I also started volunteering at the local Aboriginal community within my um, suburb. Mm-hmm. And I also started working for a, um, a research centre just to understand what my life was without being an engineering manager. And it was great. Yeah, I mean, and I'm listening to you talk about it and there's so many layers to to what you went through and it's kind of tied mm. to expectation and then failure and ego and taking time to to tap into what's important but taking time to find out what those things are uh, but it's also there's this idea of you know when people talk about slow slowing down or simplifying life often it comes with this picture of doing a lot less but you didn't mm. it, that's the, not necessarily how it looked for you you did a lot but it was in service of finding your priorities and in service of giving of yourself and um Yeah, I think that's really admirable. Oh, thank you. I think we always forget that in giving, we're actually getting more than we give. Mm -hmm. And that's the lesson I learned because it made me grateful. It made me so grateful for being an Australian. Um, It made me grateful that we have a system that looks after, you know, those that are less fortunate than us. But also at the same time, it made me realize that probably my calling in life was not necessarily sitting in an ivory tower in a corporate world, but talking to people, giving back, because that's where I felt most nourished. That's when I started to think about that career change of going into medicine, where it would balance my scientific thinking, my engineering thinking into something that's more tangible into helping people in their everyday lives. So yeah, I think giving is, it gave back to me. Mm. So that's a big transition as well. You know, mm. you go from someone who was working incredibly hard and enjoying the like the the status benefits of that in terms of the stuff that you owned and um, your bank balance, and then you make the shift to a service oriented work and study, and that would of mm. course make a huge shift. Um, when did you discover the idea of minimalism mixed in all of this? It was during that six months I discovered your podcast and your blog and I also watched the documentary The Minimalist, mm-hmm. the, uh, Minimalism and I found this community of understanding that less really is more and I went from living in my in-law's place where we were trying to, um, we were house-sitting for a year or so and we were living in this four-bedroom you know, typical Australian suburban house, literally with a white picket fence. Right. And I it, I, it was filled with stuff. I felt that because there was four bedrooms, I had to fill those four bedrooms. And so I accumulated so much stuff prior to the six months of me moving and, you know, taking that time off. It got to the point where I felt so overwhelmed. Packages would come in because that was my thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Internet shopping was my thing. Uh, Packages would come in and I would be hiding them from my husband so that he wouldn't know that I was buying things. But I was buying these things to placate myself, to placate the feelings, to stuff my feelings down. 
And I went from this absolute maximus lifestyle to having to be forced to be a minimalist because, firstly, for economical reasons. Right, yeah. So, yeah, because I went from two incomes to one income. So I wouldn't say my path to minimalism or environmentalism was necessarily, you know, morally based in, in the first instance. It was more, more based on economics than environmentalism. But in doing so, all those other values, which I learned later on, came through. Right. And I like that you touched on that it was almost out of necessity in the beginning mm. because mm-hmm. And you and I have spoken about this a little before, but there's this element of minimalism. When people picture it, when people read about it in the media, it's almost always, there's almost always pushback that, oh, well, that's nice for, you know, white privileged people. Like it's a, it's a nice to have. And there's never any indication that people are making minimalism a choice as opposed to the people who just have to be by by circumstance, you know, they have to live minimally by circumstance. And I think that's the other thing that I love about your approach is that it's steeped in this idea that it's accessible to everyone as well, whether it's by circumstance or by choice or somewhere in between. Yeah. And I think that comes through really well in in your work. Oh, thank you. I think it's culturally where I come from. Being a minimalist or living a zero waste life was essential to my upbringing, right. to the way I was brought up, because my parents never had any money. Uh, and if they did, it was, you know, to cover the essentials. And so all the tips that I'm giving to my followers and through my blog and through my Instagram is actually things that I learned from my parents. So they're naturally, by hmm. nature, minimalists. And live a zero waste life because they didn't have anything to waste. Right. Frugality was a way of living. Like that just had to be the way they did their day to day. Absolutely. And I don't, you know, not necessarily frugality because there's an element of almost stinginess to that sometimes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But almost to the fact that they wanted to live the best life they could with the resources that they had. And I think Hmm. those lessons that they taught me growing up that they were blessed to live in Australia. They were really lucky to have steady jobs, not high-paying jobs, but steady jobs so we can have food on the table, a, a roof over our heads, you know, clothes on our backs. They've always wanted us to have a luxurious life even though we didn't have a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, so they are really like very good role models for the the heart of minimalism, which is having enough and living well. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, and I talk about this in my book, I call it the Goldilocks zone, not too much, not too little, just enough. Mm. And that just enough is different for everyone, right? In different seasons of our lives, it's going to be different for us as well. So, you know, when I'm a student, now that I am, it's, it's going to be very, very frugal. But maybe when I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a doctor, I can lessen that a bit. But that's the skills that I have to learn in, in changing the different seasons, going to the different seasons of my life. And that's what they taught me as well, that they don't, you don't have to be so militant about it. You don't have to be so strict about it because life is meant to be enjoyed. And minimalism and sometimes zero waste living has that almost emphasis that it's more militant than passionate. Yes. <laughs> and, and I want to change that focus because, you know, we are in the privilege of uh, position to make decisions like this, but not everyone is. So we have the privileged decision to say, well, this is what we want to do with our money. This is what we want to do with our time. Mm. 
but not everyone is. And I learned this from my parents. We were minimalists and lived a zero like waste life because we had to. Right. So if you're talking to someone, someone listening today who is has found themselves needing to live a simple life, not because they're choosing to, but because that's the circumstances they're in at the moment, mm. but they're struggling with it, you know, expectations or family requirements or, or whatever the case may be is putting pressure on them. Do you have somewhere that you suggest people begin if they feel themselves either getting that, that pushback from family or friends or, you know, society in general, is there somewhere for people to begin when they don't have all the options on the table for, you know, going out and buying one new minimalist gadget to replace 10? Yeah. I, I talk about this in my book and, the, and my book is a 30-day challenge. And the first step of that 30-day challenge is start where you are. Yeah. So you don't need to buy fancy gadgets. You don't need to go out and replace all your disposables with reusables. It's just acknowledging that I'm in the mindset of starting and it could be something small. So instead of going out and buying cotton bags, you can upcycle pillowcases. You can sew your own napkins using old bed linen. It's starting where you are and making do with what you have. And it goes back to that mindset of uh, make do and mend. Mm -hmm. And that's something my parents taught me. You don't have to go out and immediately start a new lifestyle and buy a shiny new outfit to go with that lifestyle. <laughs> you know, we, sometimes we, uh, you know, we're growing up, I've played with Barbies and Barbies always had an, an outfit for every occasion. And sometimes I think that minimalism and zero waste living, people go out and think it has to look a certain way. So they go exactly. out. Yeah, they go out and spend that money for that new uniform to be that new person. But really, everything that we need, we already have. Nine times out of ten, really, everything that we need, we already have. And if you don't have it, we can ask. Don't forget that we can ask for help, that we can ask our neighbours, our friends, our local community, our Facebook market groups. And most most of the time, people are more than happy to give you what they, they have excess of. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this is where there's a fine line, I think, with social media, where you're kind of looking for motivation or advice from hashtag philosophies. You know, if you're looking at hashtag mm. slow living or hashtag zero waste, they're great for inspiration, truly. Mm. But they're also not great for comparison's sake if you're just beginning on this kind mm. of journey because you look at hashtag minimalism and you're like, well, I'm not a minimalist because my walls aren't light grey uh, or I don't own five of the same black T-shirts or, you know, and it's there's mm. this pressure to keep up with a new set of Joneses. And that's why, again, I love this shift towards making zero waste, simplicity, minimalism much more accessible because, as you say, you just begin where you are, begin with what you've got, you use your plastic containers until they're no longer usable, you know, and then you look at upgrading, you might be able to find them at a thrift shop or, or whatever the case may be. It doesn't need to be an exercise in additional consumption. Exactly, exactly. And like I said before, if you start where you are, you're doing a stock take of your life. Yes. The second step in my book is actually to do a bin audit, which is to go through your garbage bin and have a look at what you're, what you're producing most of, so your frequent flyers of waste. And then you start to realize the patterns you're making and the habits you're, you're consuming. And those then can change in time. It doesn't have to be overnight. It's, it's taken me 
three to four years to make a, a transition when, which I'm happy with to find that Goldilocks zone. And even now I'm still learning and I'm sure tomorrow I'll still be learning. But everything that I buy now is secondhand. But before I even buy anything, I do the, you know, ask the minimalist question, do I need it? Can I make do with something I already have? And if I do actually need it, I think about it. I think about it and then I ask for help. And I think you know, we, especially in the Chinese community, because we like to show face, sometimes we don't like to ask for help. But even in Western culture, I find that we're very isolated at times and we live not in the communities that we've, you know, grown accustomed to. And we're afraid to ask for help. And I think we need to go back to that and say, hey, I, I need help with this. Let's have a conversation about it. Or, or do you have a solution to this? And in that conversation, you build community mm. and, you, and you build that trust towards others and know that you have enough. And I think in that, in having those conversations, we're also gently admitting that we don't all have it all together, you know. And oh, there's, absolutely. There's something really liberating in that. And I've, that's, mm. a, that's a lesson that I learned time and time again. I mean, I go back to when I was first diagnosed with postnatal depression and I thought that I was the only one. I thought that all my friends and all the women that I had met at playgroup and all the people that I knew from, uh, from school and, and, you know, whoever I came across, they all had it together. And mm. I remember making the intentional choice to say to someone, this is what I'm going through and this is why it's been tough and this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm feeling better. And within moments of starting that conversation, I realized that like, I'm not the only one. Seriously, Brooke, get your head out of your backside. Like really, you you exist in a network of people who all have their own things going on. And if someone is kind of brave enough, I guess, to admit or to ask for help, that opens up so many doors. And mm. as you say, that's, commu- that's community. Community doesn't, Absolutely. yeah. I think that's really beautiful. I think also we forget as humans that we're animals and as animals, we are social animals. Mm. And in this very, you know, isolated world that we live in, we forget that we do need that social interaction. And that's where we actually get our energy from sometimes that finding people in like, um, in similar circumstances and also listening to their stories helps us reflect on our own. And so we need to get out and form those communities. It's part of our DNA. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? You can tell that when you do because you feel something additional that doesn't come from spending time alone, um, just mulling over the same issues in isolation. You you reach out, you connect, and it, it feels different. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. You mentioned at the beginning of our chat that for you sustainability is, of course, an environmental concern, but it's also about what we ourselves can sustain. So in terms of Mm -hmm. our time and our energy, you have a lot going on in terms of studying. Um, Mm -hmm. You've just made a move. You've got your zero waste work. You're writing your book, which is coming out in July. So that's full. And I don't don't want to use the word busy. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's full. Do you have some strategies that you personally use to keep your time sustainable, you know, to, to keep your energy moderated across all of the things that you're, you're part of and, and to, to not waste time and to not waste energy on things. Absolutely. I think this is the engineering coming out of me, so bear with me. Um, but I like to do a cost-benefit analysis <laughs> on things. And, and, and by that I mean you have to assess everything in terms of your time, the energy that you put in, 
the finances that you put in and also your morals as well. So when you're balancing all these things and then you assess the situation, you do that cost-benefit analysis. And if at the end of it, it all balances out to something that's positive, then I say go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned before, you know, I'm a student of medicine. I used to be a rocket scientist. I'm writing a book. I'm flying back and forth between Sydney and San Francisco. It is a very full life. But I've also had to learn, and this is a quote that I was given years ago, that you can have everything, just not everything all at once. And that's why I've taken a year off to write my book, be with my husband for a year, and then I'll go back to studying medicine. Because we have to be gentle on ourselves, Brooke. Um, during that six months off, I learned I learned that I learned that to be able to give to others, you have to give to yourself. I couldn't agree more. It's just the idea mm. of tilting in action, really. Mm, absolutely. And sustainable living has to be sustainable for you. And I keep saying that because I think sometimes you know, where it be environmentalism, minimalism, veganism, whatever it be, it can be almost militant rather than passionate. And some people take it to almost an extreme where their whole focus of their life is around those isms, right? We don't need to focus on the isms. I apply the 80-20 rule. So that's another little engineering thing there for you. The 80-20 rule is basically if I do something 80% of the time to the best of my effort, then the other 20% I give myself leeway Mm. because life happens. And applying that 80-20 rule has been a real game changer for me as well because it has allowed me gentleness. I'm a typical type A personality. I'm sure you can hear, you know, rocket science, medicine, all that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I'm an overachiever. I can just say that now. I'm a recovering (laughs) overachiever. (laughs) And I never, ever gave myself that kind of leniency. But Also, that other quote, that beautiful quote, it's better done than perfect, Mm -hmm. it has really been absolute lifelines for me. So applying the 80-20 rule and saying it's better done than perfect has been game changers for me because it, it, it allows me that gentleness, that grace that I needed for myself. Was that a hard um hard shift for you to make personally? Because I mean, as you say, you were someone who really proud of the fact that you were working incredibly hard and achieving great things, but you never gave yourself that time. And then you, that gentleness, which is a beautiful word. Uh, What did that transition look like for you? Because I'm, I'm often contacted by people who see the need for simplifying. They see the need for doing a little less or to give themselves a little space or grace, uh, but they don't know how to, because that ingrained perfectionism, that ingrained overachieving is really hard to, to, to shake. So what was that like for you? I think it was going back to meditation okay, and being more present. And also I love this story that Oprah shares. She's she, <laughs> Oprah. You can always quote Oprah. Um, <laughs> she says, I love it when people say that you're full of yourself because she says, when I'm full of myself, my cup is overflowing. So then I can give to others. And I really see that studying in medicine, that as doctors, sometimes the patient that they need to take care of is themselves. Because we give and we give and we give, and this is something that women do. Mm -hmm. We give and we give and we give, but we don't give to ourselves. And then we have nothing. Our cup is empty, so we cannot 
it's not overfilling. So we can't give, give it, give to others. So I've really learned to have self-care and take time out when I need it. So some days when I'm not feeling my best, I'm feeling tired, I have no qualms, no guilt now to just say, I'm going to cancel my meetings. I'm going to cancel my appointments for the day. And I'm just going to sit on the couch and do nothing. And that one day of restoring myself and nourishing myself allows me for the rest of the, you know, 364 days of the year to give to others. So Mm -hmm. I have no guilt about that now. And I've had to learn that because, you know, during that six months off, part of the reasons why I had to quit my job was because I was feeling that sense of burnout. And if you're running, if you're running at full speed, at full throttle for the first 26 of your 26 years of your life, you can't continue that. And I like to think of it once again, a little engineering analogy, you need the maintenance, you need the maintenance so that you can upkeep your, your body, which is, you know, your vehicle towards Mm. life. So the maintenance is whatever you need it to be your self care ritual. For me, it's, you know, taking out time for myself, meditating, doing yoga, going for a walk in nature. But for you, it might be different. But whatever it is, don't feel guilty about it and just do it. I could not agree more. I think that the more full of ourselves, to quote Oprah, uh, we mm. are, the the better, yeah, the better we're going to be able to do everything else uh, and serve the people who rely on us and, and do the work that's important to us. Mm. I, I feel really wonderful about some of the advice that you've given today, actually. It's come at a good time for me. Oh, thank you. And, you know, back to the isms again, you know, you and I were talking about minimalism and environmentalism. I think sometimes people can be scared off by these isms because they almost seem like a religion these days. Yes. You know, there's so many rules associated with it. But I want to say that it doesn't have to be that way because life isn't that way. You know, we have to relax into it. It should be a gentle gentle approach that we give to it rather than this very hard militant approach with rules and regulations. Um, In my book, I talk about the three steps to zero waste method, which is something that I had to reflect on because I was really tired of just hearing the term zero waste, zero waste, zero waste, and it's scaring people away. Right. For me, the term zero waste is just a nice search term. It's a Google search term or a hashtag term, as you like to say. I like to play on the words and give it a double meaning. So zero waste life for me means not only reducing your waste, but also not wasting your life. Mm-hmm. And to do that, I developed this method, which was called the three steps to zero waste method. So instead of going straight to zero, I have three different options. So the first one might be just dipping your toes. So just slightly reducing your waste, seeing how that goes. The second option is a low waste option. So not totally zero waste, but better than just dipping your toe. And then you can level up and then go to the final option of zero waste. And in different seasons of your life, you're going to be mix and matching those steps so that it gives you flexibility and also gives you that grace that you need to say, hey, this is something I can do rather than saying I'm daunted by it just by hearing the term zero. And that was the thing. I remember I spoke to Bea Johnson a couple of years ago and I was so intimidated by the idea of zero waste living. I really was. And when I spoke Mm. to her, I was truly expecting uh, her to come at the idea with this really black and white view. And she's someone Mm. who's practiced for a very long time and has got her systems and her, you know, her strategies in place in a way that a lot of people don't yet have. But she was still so gracious in the way she encouraged people to begin. And I love that. 
that it's an invitation to start. Dip your toe in. Exactly, exactly. It has to be that way. We're trying to encourage people rather than to deter people. So I think with any kind of isms that we have in life, whether it be um, minimalism or environmentalism, it's just that concept of starting where you are, Mm. being gentle with yourself. And in time, sometimes you can do better, sometimes you can't. Applying that 80-20 rule once again. Exactly. Now, to finish up, I love your three steps, like your three levels of zero Mm. waste. Could you give me an example of one action that each of those levels would entail, you know, with your your dipping your toe? What would that look like if someone wanted to to just try it out starting today? Sure. So uh, one thing I like to talk about is composting. Okay. So when we hear about composting, we feel, oh my gosh, that's really daunting. It's something I have to upkeep. So when we talk about composting, reducing your food waste is one of the biggest things you can do in terms of reducing your waste from your garbage bin. So the first option of reduced waste is actually just really simple. Having a look at your neighbor's gardens, seeing if you can put your compost in their compost bin or having a look at your local community garden and saying, hey, can I put my waste in here? Or uh, even taking your waste once a month or once a week to the local farmer's markets and and dumping it there instead Mm. of having to upkeep your own compost bin. The next option, low waste, is having something that's easily done for you. So in my instance, I live in an apartment, so I couldn't really have a compost bin. So I chose a Bukashi bin, which is a, a system that allows you to ferment your waste and it comes out with a liquid, which you can use as a fertilizer. So I chose a Bukashi bin and I also chose a worm farm. Mm-hmm which was actually accessible for me inside an apartment. And then the totally zero waste option is to actually freeze all your scraps, um, make sure all your vegetable peels are, um, uh, you know, you can reuse them from, you know, reuse the root to the tail, I like to say, for the vegetable, and also developing your own compost bin. So it could be a a mixture of a worm farm, it could be a compost system, it could be a bokashi bin, so that everything, including your bones and your egg, so eggshells and things like that, can be composted from start to finish. So as you can see, that's a three-tier approach Mm. that you can find a solution that works for you. I love that. Uh, Can I ask you a very Mm. specific question? You're in an apartment and you have a worm farm. Do you use like a, did you make your system yourself or did you buy it? Because I have had someone ask me about this. (laughs) Uh, I bought it. I bought the system. And worms are actually really, really good because they don't smell and they are self-containing and you just keep them in a dark spot and they do all the hard work for you. Yeah. No, we, we had a worm farm back at our old place and I loved it, but I, I wasn't mm. sure if there was a, you know, an accessible way to, to have your own wormies when you were in an apartment. But that's really cool to know. Yeah. Uh, I could chat with you for hours, Anita, You're just like a, a, a fountain of wisdom. Oh, thanks, Brooke. No, <laughs> thank you. It's been absolutely wonderful. I cannot wait for your book to come out. Now, it will be out in the next week or so yeah second of july so i'm going to include a link in our show notes to the book and your website but the best place for people to find you online is instagram as we have just spoken about and your rocket underscore science yes on instagram yep Yep. and then at your website as well which is anitavandyke.com and i will again link to that in the show notes but it's been such a pleasure and good luck with the book it's uh i'm sure it's going to be wonderful and life-changing for so many people 
Oh, thank you, Brooke. I really appreciate this chat. And like I said before, I've listened to your podcast for years. So it's a huge fangirl moment for me to be able to be featured on it. So thank you. No, the pleasure was mine. Thanks, Anita. Thank you. Bye. Who is that? Hi, Papa.